If I said to you, look around you, there is a spirit that lives in the wood and the stone and the earth and even the air of this building, you would look at me as though I had said something very strange. To believe in spirits that dwell in objects and that those spirits have some sort of control or influence over our lives seems deeply superstitious and something to be rejected. We now have science. We know that the sun rises and sets because of the rotation of the earth and the earth's orbit around the sun, not because some god pulls his chariot across the sky. We know that people get sick because of diseases, not because someone has put a curse on them. But if we go to the extreme of complete materialism or the extreme of complete superstition, we have fallen into the two errors that C.S. Lewis describes this way. He said this, there is the two equal and opposite errors in which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis further develops this idea with regard to a fictional account based on scripture of the strategies and schemes that demons might use in tempting humans. He said this, speaking as an older teaching a younger, I have great hopes we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize lies and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to believe in the enemy, the enemy being God, of course, from the perspective of the demons. Continuing, the life force, the worship of sex, and other aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, the end of the war will be in sight. This is fascinating given our current culture, especially right now. People deny the existence of God and see little use for the church, but have we've seen a huge increase in interest in those who would provide various kinds of therapy. If you actually believe that your brain is the product of chance evolution and you are a mere creature no different except in scale from a pill bug or a fish or a dog, why are you concerned about an inward part of you and the health of it, right? That makes no sense from a purely materialistic framework. Or take the businessman who runs a successful company and yet will go see a psychic or check astrological information in not the newspaper anymore, wherever you might find those sorts of things today. This strange mix of superstition and materialism. The biblical truth is not, let's deny the existence of God, believe in science, and use elements of superstition. That's not the sort of hybrid that we're looking for. That's the danger that Lewis described. The Christian perspective is someone who recognizes there is both a physical world and a spiritual one, but is not so fearful of that spiritual world that they fail to recognize God's role in it, and not so confident in that physical world that they think that they have all of the answers about how everything fits together. If you want an illustration of this, 
have a discussion about gravity. Have a discussion about some of the more advanced and esoteric branches of physics. At a certain point, you cross the line from pure science into something that sounds an awful lot like faith in a blind force that knits the universe together. In that context, we come to a passage like this. So when you hear this passage, don't think fear a spirit in under every rock and tree and in every dirt and air and every other place, but also don't think there is no spiritual world and this is mere superstition from long ago. What does this passage call us to do? In conclusion to the other instructions that Paul has given in this letter, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Sometimes, we jump immediately in this passage to the idea of what are the pieces of armor and their significance, and we sort of rush over that first verse, which is perhaps the most important because it sets the context for what is to follow. The strength for the battle against forces that we do not always recognize and against which we will not have victory on our own, the strength for that battle does not come from within. It's not believe in yourself, trust your heart, look within, and you'll find the ability to overcome any obstacle that you face, spiritual or otherwise. The strength for these things comes from God Himself. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What does this look like? Survey the Psalms and notice how many times it talks about God as our rock, our fortress, our defense, our strength. God is the source of strength for spiritual warfare. But even as God has equipped the church, as we saw back in Ephesians chapter 4, by means of, in the early church, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists, and today pastors and teachers and perhaps evangelists, even as He has equipped the church through with people, He has also equipped the church with these things described in verses 11 through 17. He introduces it in verse 11 by saying, Put on the full armor of God. Why? So you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So there is an action that he is calling us to do, and I, don't, I think we would all recognize that, and the purpose for doing the action is to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because we live in a materialistic society, we tend to dismiss the idea that the devil is real in any meaningful sense. In part, because some groups that call themselves Christians, and perhaps are, have so overemphasized this that they've made it sound like Satan is everywhere at once, personally tempting each individual in every case that they're about to sin. And we know from a variety of Scripture passages that that's not the case. We'll talk more about why that's not the case in just a moment. But the reality is that the devil has schemes which he's trying to accomplish, and that's the point that this verse is making. Uh, Peter described it where the devil is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And then comes this verse that, again, in a materialistic context, we push back against and we say, this is hard to reconcile in our thinking. Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. A struggle against flesh and blood is easier to understand because you can see the enemy, right? Uh, it's the difference between 
something like uh, World War I, for example, and the Cold War. In World War I, regardless of whether the reasons for the fighting were correct, there were soldiers on this side, there were soldiers on that side, and they were fighting one another, and they more or less knew what was going on. With the Cold War, what was going on? It was a lot of things in the shadows. It wasn't so much battles between two armies. It was more political maneuvering and, and research and development and all of these sorts of things and, and trying to get an edge on the other person and, and trying to uh, discourage their attack by having superior weaponry and all of these other sorts of elements. What Paul describes here has more in common, perhaps, with the Cold War than it does with World War I because we are fighting an invisible enemy. The danger then is that we think, well, just because we can't see this enemy is not real, right? What sort of enemy are we talking about? Rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul already alluded to this earlier in the book when he talks about in Ephesians 2, verse 2, that you used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so when we take these two passages together, what does he mean? He means that there are evil spirits that have rebelled against God and are in opposition to God and are seeking to interfere with God's purposes in the world. I think we certainly need to acknowledge, based on earlier testimony in Scripture, passages in Daniel, passages in Isaiah, uh, passages even from the, describing the experience of Christ and the apostles, that sometimes this conflict took very specific and direct forms. For example, example the angel that comes and addresses Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 says he was prevented at first from coming, coming because there was a, a conflict between himself and another angel, presumably an evil angel, described as the prince of Persia. And there has been all sorts of speculation on how to understand that. But the simple reality is this. Satan is the ruler of this world. He can't be everywhere at once. And so the glimpses that we see in Scripture imply, I think, a structure and an organization in which Satan is overseeing his whole scheme and individual demons have areas and regions in which they are trying to accomplish Satan's purposes. Do we have scriptural warrant to develop it more than that? Probably not. Is it our goal to figure out who is the territorial spirit of a particular region? No, that's not the focus here in Scripture, but the simple reality is Satan is over a group of other angels who are likewise trying to oppose God and accomplish his purposes. These are the ones with whom we are locked in struggle, but not at a, at a state level. And I think it's important to note this given right now in our current circumstances for, because there are people who would say all of the things that are going on now in our world, in our state, are evidence of spiritual forces of darkness, and we need to do a specific action to address them. There's a couple of responses that I would have to that. One is, the emphasis here is not primarily on what you individually are doing, and we'll see that developed here in a moment, but what God is doing in and through the church as a whole, us individually, but in, in connection with other believers. The struggle between 
demons and world forces and all of those sorts of things and angels who are following God, like what we see in Daniel, is not necessarily a struggle that we are called to participate in directly. That is a struggle that God is overseeing on the one side and Satan is overseeing on the other side, and we're not necessarily called to bind the demon who is influencing a particular country and try to drive him out. That's not really what this passage is calling us to do. We can acknowledge that struggle while recognizing that's not the part of it that we're called to be engaged in. The reason that I emphasize that is it borders on what Lewis warned us against, which is an unhealthy interest in these things. When God hasn't clearly spoken, and when he's not clearly said, here's what you're supposed to do about it, we ought to be very wary of saying, I need to discover the scheme that is unfolding behind the scenes. We know from Scripture that there is a day that's coming when Antichrist is going to rule the world in opposition to God. There's going to be a period of great tribulation, and then Jesus is going to come back, right? To rule and to reign on the earth. And we would believe that before that, the church would be raptured out of it. That being said... We get ourselves into trouble when we try to say, here is the date on which that's going to happen, or here are the signs that we know exactly this is what's going on right now. The reason I caution us against that is because when we do the whole date-setting thing, Jesus is coming back in two days at this time, and then it doesn't happen, what happens? We lose all credibility. And more importantly, we've tried to say things that God has said he hasn't told us or that we even can't know. What is the emphasis of Scripture? It's not figure out the date and time through whatever means necessary. It is be ready for when the time comes. Paul says in Timothy, he says that in the last days, difficult times will come. And my grandfather used to say, and we're some 2,000 years into the last days, right? We ought to reflect on that. There have been people throughout history who are part of good churches who have thought that this is the day when Christ is coming back and they were wrong, but the ones that said, we think it's now, but we're going to be ready either way, those are the ones who I think were honoring God with their response. The ones who said, we're going to quit everything, and we're going to set a date, and then we prove that we're wrong, so then we're going to try to explain why we were wrong. That doesn't help our cause, right? And it doesn't give a good picture of God. What then are we called to do? If we are not called to participate at a regional or national level in this spiritual conflict, if we are not called to try to figure out precisely how this fits in all of the things that God is unfolding in the world and exactly when Christ is going to return, what then are we called to do according to this passage? Verse 13, take up the full armor of God. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Those are the things that God specifically calls us to do. Take up God's armor, stand firm, pray. So that's what we ought to do. And I think of all those things, the main idea that Paul emphasizes in this passage, based on the repetition of it, would be the idea of standing firm. We see it in verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm. Verse 13, 
having done everything to stand firm, and verse 14, stand firm therefore. So, what is God's primary goal, primary goal for us as believers? To stand firm in the midst of this conflict, on God's word, in God's strength, accompanied by prayer and the resources that he has given to us. What are those resources? I want to point out something interesting for you that I think we might not always recognize. Here, we are seeing the armor described as truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. However, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul gives us a different list. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why do I highlight that for you? Sometimes people, I think, have overemphasized the significance of each particular element that Paul describes here as though the element itself was supposed to be the focus. What I mean by that is this. When he says the helmet of salvation, they will say something like, the helmet is salvation, and salvation is what protects our thinking because Paul's talking about a helmet, and a helmet covers your head, and so it protects your thinking and your, and your thoughts. And, and a breastplate has to do with righteousness, and that protects your heart because that's just where physically it is on your body. I don't think that's the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying all of these things collectively, as the song we just sang a few moments ago, the panoply of God, the collective armor is the resources that God has provided in part because of the passage I just read you from 1 Thessalonians. He uses different words to describe the same thing, so he's less concerned about being precise and saying, this is the only thing that is the picture of the breastplate or the picture of the helmet, and because of the larger context of the book. Turn back to chapter 4. Look at verse 24. He says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now look at verse 14 again of chapter 6. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What Paul is calling us to do here is not something different from what he called us to do in chapter 4. He's just giving us a different picture of the same thing. It's not... Put off sin, put on righteousness and holiness over here. And then now this is the different thing, put on the armor of God. Putting on the new self is putting on the armor of God. Putting on the new self is putting on the armor of God. And why is that important? For one, because sometimes we read all these different commands and we think, I've got to do this, and 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 it's overwhelming. I I can't do all of those things at once. God's not calling us to do ten different things. God's calling us to do one thing, and he's describing it in different ways. So that helps us not to be overwhelmed with the task, and it helps us to see that God is working toward achieving one purpose. God's not trying to do 15 different things. He's trying to do one thing, right? So what does this look like then? When it says, having girded your loins with truth, sometimes we, people will get into an argument about, is it speaking 
truth, like be an honest person, or is it the truth as in truth that God has revealed? There's no reason it can't be both. Why do I say that? Because Paul in Ephesians has talked about believing the truth in context of the gospel, and Paul has talked about correspondingly speaking truth to one another, both generally and specifically the Word of God. So when we say, what does he mean by truth or by righteousness or by the preparation of the gospel of peace, I think we would do well to look back through the book of Ephesians and say, how has he used these ideas earlier in the book? Because that then informs the way that he's using them here. Why does he call it the preparation of the gospel of peace? Because he talks about earlier in the book about the reality of them having received the gospel. Uh, he talks about Christ himself being our peace in chapter 2. We see these themes that he said earlier in the book being brought up again here at the end of the book. Uh, in verse 16, when he talks about the shield of the faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, I think we get into this question of, is this a defensive or an offensive stance? That's, I think, one of the questions that you might encounter when you look at this passage, right? You read different commentaries or listen to different sermons on it. However, again, I don't think we can say it's exclusively one or the other. Some people have tried to make the argument, well, the sword in verse 17 is a word that typically describes a short sword, not a really long sword, but a short sword, so it's intended only for defense, not for offense, and so... Uh, this is only defensive. I'm not entirely sure, but I think part of that concern may be an overreaction to the people who want to go out there and say, all right, we've got to name the demon and bind them and go after them and all that sort of thing. So then sometimes we come over here and we're like, this is only defensive. This is just me, you know, I've got to stand firm and I'm not doing anything active against the work of Satan in the world. I'm just standing firm here, Right? Maybe there's other reasons for it, too. But, I think when we set it alongside what he says in verses 18 through 20, particularly in verse 19 where he says that Paul would be, make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, and verse 20, that he might speak it boldly as he ought to speak, there is an element of the advance of God's kingdom by means of the proclamation of the gospel that is connected with the putting on of the armor of God. Which is to say, God strengthens me so that I put on the new self, so that I live out and take his word to other people. So the question is not so much, is the armor defensive or offensive? The question is, am I doing what Paul has called me to do earlier in the book, which is to put off the old self and put on the new self? recognizing that it's only God's strength and God's power that makes any of that possible, working toward the goal that as I am changed and as I am transformed, I become more like Christ and I speak Him boldly to those around me. Again, it's sort of bookended on either side, God's strength upheld by God's power secured by prayer. God is the start and the end of this work, but He is working it out through us here in the middle, and that's, I think, the structure and the development of this passage. How then does this affect our 
preparation for spiritual warfare if we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's not something I just keep trying harder and I'm going to have success at. That's our American individualism, right? I can do this. I got this. If I just work harder, I will succeed. And I think a circumstance like the one we find ourselves in now shows us that there are things beyond our control that mere grit and determination cannot overcome. You may pour your heart and soul into building your business or whatever else, but if you can't run it because it's been shut down, your determination was not a bad thing, but there are things that can overcome even that. The same thing is true in our Christian lives. We think that if we just are more committed to God that we will win the battle. But it's not just being more committed and, and relying on ourselves. It is recognizing that, as Jesus said in John, apart from me you can do nothing. And again, there's this, there's this tension. Does that mean I just sort of sit back and wait for God to do everything? No. Does that mean I just do everything all on my own? No. It is this coming together of the recognition that apart from God's power, nothing will happen. And apart from my obedience, God is not honored and, and sanctification is not being accomplished. And people think, well, those two things are contradictory. No, they fit together. They work together. I can confidently grow in sanctification because I know God is at work in me, like it says in the book of Philippians. I can confidently proclaim the gospel because I know that God is going to save people. Those two ideas work together. They're not at odds with each other. So the first thing is that, as far as application, that if we are going to approach this properly, we recognize that it's God's strength, not our own, and that should not lead us to pride. It should lead us toward humility and seeking God's strength and God's help in this task. When we recognize that there is a similarity, even an equality, between what he said in chapter 4 and what he says here in chapter 6 of putting on the new self and putting on the armor, then instead of it being this impossible task where we say, I don't know even where to begin. I mean, what does that look like? Does it look like I get up in the morning and I, I visualize myself putting on each piece of the armor? I, I'm, I, I, in my mind, I'm putting on the helmet. In my mind, I'm I'm buckling on the pieces of armor that go over my arms. In my mind, I'm putting on the shoes. That probably has more in common with like a New Age meditation than it does with a biblical application of this passage. So if it's not like visualizing the pieces of armor, if it's not, what does it look like to actually follow this passage out? Look at how Paul uses these words earlier in the book. You're supposed to gird your loins with truth. Know what is the truth of God. Speak it to those around you. Ephesians 5. Uh, and generally speak truth to one another as we saw back in chapter 4. If I am to put on the breastplate of righteousness, what does that look like? It looks like a daily recognition and awareness that it is not my good works that are the basis of my acceptance before God. It's remembering that Jesus 
died in my place and his righteousness is put in my place in God's sight such that I am holy in God's sight. So perhaps in part, putting on the breastplate of righteousness is reflecting on the truths of the gospel about Jesus' work and what he's done for us and how we are in his, in his righteousness. And then taking it a step further, maybe the argument of Romans 6 where it says, and because you're united with Christ, because you have his righteousness, you cannot live in sin and you must live in slavery and obedience to this righteousness that God has called you to. When it says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, again, it's not that I picture myself putting on shoes, all right, now, now I'm, I'm ready to go do this. It means that we actually go do it, right? There's a gospel of peace. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, that people are at odds with God, they're at war with God, they're fighting against God, and they need the message of the gospel to say there can be peace with God, but not through all the ways that you might try to secure it, only through Jesus and the peace that he accomplishes for God. And ironically, that message of peace is part of the war and the victory that God accomplishes over the forces of darkness. So we tend not to think of peace as being in the context of war, but here in this passage, the two things go together because the more people that are converted through the gospel of peace, the more victory that God has secured over Satan, his enemy. And it's not as though Satan's uh, victory was ever in question, like, is he going to win? Is he not going to win? He's going to lose. The Bible says for sure he's going to lose. He is defeated. He's making maneuvers until that day comes. But we proclaim the gospel of peace. When it says taking up the shield of faith, again, it's not, it's not visualizing that I have this, this, this circle of protection around myself, and if I just, in my own strength, like... Um, you know, like on a, a science fiction or a fantasy movie, if, if I can just sort of, you know, hold the shields on my starship, right? Everybody's firing all their lasers at me. If I can just keep the shields up long enough, they'll get tired and go away or help will arrive. That's not what this, this verse is talking about. When it says the shield of faith, faith is the shield, Right? And it's faith in God, and again it goes back to its being God's power that helps us to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And the different commentaries talk about the fact that they could light arrows on fire in different ways and hurl them at their enemies, and that there were properties about, you know, they'd, they'd like douse animal skins with water so that when the flaming arrows hit that, that would extinguish them. And all that may be true, but the emphasis here is, again, it's God's power that is shielding us. It's God's power. It's God himself who is our shield, right? And it's faith in him that enables us to overcome that temptation. A uh, quick aside about temptation. Is this an individual struggle or something that we're doing collectively? I think most of the time we hear this passage, we take it as like, here's me and my struggle, and I put on my armor, and I have my victory against Satan. But think about the larger context of the book of Ephesians. Think about especially chapter 2. You're being built together into this holy dwelling for God and the Lord. Christ is, Ephesians 5, working to present the church in its entirety to himself as a spotless bride. So in our struggle against temptation, this is not a solo effort. This is not me as the lone ranger over here fighting off the bad guys, no help in sight. This is us individually, but at the same time and as part of a church body, resisting 
temptation and the schemes of the devil, and God is sustaining all of us together at the same time. The reason that that's important is that if we see this as merely an individual struggle, we will often fail. Now, obviously, there's a line at which we need to be wise about the things that we say to people around us. We don't need to confess every single sin we ever do to every other person in the entire church. But we would do well, particularly the men with the men and the women with the women, to come alongside each other and be honest about the fact that we face sin and we need each other's help. Will you pray with me? Here's this temptation that I'm facing. God has given us the church for that purpose. It's not something we have to go alone. And so many times people fail in the context of churches because they're over here doing this thing, fighting against this sin, or they've given up on the fight against sin, and we're not connected enough with each other to realize what's going on, and we have this atmosphere or culture in, I'm not talking about our church specifically, in churches broadly, where we have to pretend like we're all good people and we have everything together, and the reality is we don't. So ask for help from your fellow believers and collectively bring those requests before God. And that's part of how we can successfully, as it says in verse 16, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then verse 17, taking the helmet of salvation. We have salvation in Christ. And I said earlier, it's not like we have to visualize this idea and it's going to protect our brains because that's where our thinking happens. But there is an element where I think he's tying this to our thinking. We ought to reflect on our salvation, right? We ought to recognize the truths about our salvation. If we are to have success in spiritual warfare, go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Why should I be motivated to say no to this sin at this specific moment? Because of what God has done for me, because of what God is doing for me, and because of what God will do for me, and if we just read over Ephesians chapter 1 and reflected on that more often, we might be less prone to sin. But we get in the moment of temptation and we're like, man, this sin looks really good because we've forgotten how amazing the things that God has already done for us are and how amazing all the things that He has yet to do for us are. And so, to borrow another thing from C.S. Lewis, we're in the backyard digging in the mud when we have the promise of a day at the seashore. Or to put it the way that Jeremiah talked about it, you could drink from a pure spring of water and you're scraping up muddy water out of a dirty puddle with a piece of broken pottery. The more that we reflect on the glory of what God has done for us in Christ, and then that translates into actual change in our hearts and minds, the more we will find success in our struggle against temptation. And when we fail to regularly contemplate these great truths about God and then act on them, the more that we will find ourselves giving in and seeking after sin and loving it. And when it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, how do we have victory in this battle? Look back to Jesus' example in Matthew 4. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles. I'm sure you're familiar with the passage. How did Jesus counteract all of the attacks of Satan? With the truth of God. And it's not like proof-texting Scripture is a magic amulet that's gonna, Satan's going to say, hey, here's a temptation to blaspheme against God. Oh, I quoted the verse. Bing! 
Now that one went off to the side. He couldn't get me there. It's not like we're winning a debate here. It is that if we are convinced of the truths of the Word of God, Satan's lies are going to fall short. When we're not convinced of the truths of the Word of God, his lies, his attacks start to seem pretty attractive, and we give in to them. And then coming to verses 18 through 20, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Again, we don't pray nearly enough about nearly enough things expressing the breadth of what Scripture calls us to pray about. We talked this in connection with Ephesians 5 and the whole idea of do our, does our, our worship and our praise, does, our, do all of that, does all of that reflect an entire picture of God? Our prayers often don't reflect the scope of the prayers that we see in the Bible or the frequency of the prayers that we see in the Bible. And so if I'm over here saying I'm putting on the armor and I'm ready to go, and then we skip over the next three verses we are often going to fail. Because the putting on of the new self when it is not accompanied by prayer is often self-deception that I'm just turning over a new leaf, right? But the putting on of the armor, acknowledging God's strength is the ability to do it, and calling on God for His continued help in the task, that's where we find success in spiritual warfare. And the goal is not just as it says in verses 19-20, it's not just, I am now a successfully new created thing, and I don't do any more bad stuff anymore, and so I'm good. That's kind of where it stops. The goal is, God's strength, change in my life, God's strength through prayer, boldly proclaim the gospel. Because that's right what Paul turns to. Pray for me that I can speak the gospel, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, for which I am an ambassador in chains. The putting on of the armor ought to promote godly ministry. It ought to promote spiritual maturity, which is a point that Paul made earlier in the book. The task is not done just because you've said no to the same temptation 50 times this week, and so you move on to the next one. The task continues as you grow alongside the rest of God's people and God's church collectively strives toward maturity and expands and looks toward the day when, as the, this first song that we sang, Christ calls all of those who are concrete and having victory home. I mean, that's what we're looking forward to. Sometimes we're looking at the here and now, but what we're looking forward to is the day when the battle is done, right? And it's not done until we're in God's presence. But there is a day when it's going to be finished, and so that ought to give us help. That ought to give us hope. Final comments on the last four verses. What does this sort of faithful ministry look like? Sometimes we just sort of skip over the stuff at the end of Paul's letters because we say, here's names we don't recognize of people we don't care about. Right? I mean, if we're honest, that's probably what goes through our minds sometimes. Why does he mention Tychicus? Uh, the questions that I sent out to you there's a number of passages that describe his ministry. We don't really know a whole lot about him, other than the simple fact that he was described as faithful, that Paul trusted him enough to send him to places to oversee churches at different points in their development. And so what does following this passage look like? It doesn't look like necessarily that you have your name on books and are well-known across the world or even in a smaller context it looks like faithfully following God. 
just like Tychicus, just like others that Paul mentions in his letters. And so I'd encourage you to read those passages and consider them as well. And then I want to leave you with these words here. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. If you don't really love God, you can go through the motions of what this passage calls us to do and you're really not going to have success. But if you do love God and you do know God and He's at work in you, then His strength will sustain you, His provision will help you, and the prayers that you bring before Him will be answered as you have victory against sin and as God has victory in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we look at a passage like this. There's so many different things that we could consider. Lord, I hope that the important things that you want us to consider have come out this morning, that we will reflect on them and act on them this week, that you'll be honored in it. Give us grace this week to be patient, to speak your truth and not our own ideas, to promote love for you instead of simply winning arguments with people over all the different things that we're arguing about in our world right here today. Lord, help us to be most concerned about eternal things and not just fixing things in the here and now. Certainly, we desire to have freedom to worship. We desire to uh, live peaceable and quiet lives and to follow you as we ought. But even if you do not grant us those things, we can still faithfully follow you and your work will be accomplished, and we will be gathered into your presence. And so we rejoice in those things, and we thank you for the victory that is found in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.